first time ever. Hear you loud and clearly. Uh, and it was going place. That stuff's great. But the game is not a roguelike. Boomer shooter. Bang. Hello, this is John St. John, and you're listening to KWEP In The Keep, bringing you all the hits from the finest in the world of gaming and entertainment. Now sit back and relax as the drowned god Cathala lulls your mind with the tastiest talk in town. Welcome to another chapter of In The Keep Podcast. I'm your very own prophet of the drowned god, the Motherload. The Keep is a collective of gaming enthusiasts compelled by the drowned god Cathala to frag and jib one another into oblivion for all eternity. Ivar. Ivar? Am I ever pronouncing your name right? Does anyone ever say it correctly? Um, I think, so most people go either Ivar or Ivar. Um, in Swedish, you would say Eva, but it's a little too close to Eva. People kind of mishear it, so um, yeah. I usually go with Ivar, with this stack stress in the R, uh, but uh, Ivar or Ivar is totally fine. So I was reading the uh, the Valsanga, and I noticed that Ivar the Boneless is pronounced Ivar, or Ivar, however you say yep. it. And then I felt really bad, because I was like, I've been calling this dude the wrong thing like this whole time. <laughs> well, uh, it's sort of a common theme of living in the US with yeah. this name that, you know, I really Ivar or Ivar, both both of those are totally fine. Um I'll I'll do my best to get it right, but uh, no promises. <laughs> so I mean the main reason why you're on the show today is because today is the day that the Navy has gone forth before Congress to talk about aliens. Well, <laughs> UFOs. And that's all I really give a shit to talk about any. To, at all it's like everything else just seems so dumb video games like fucking you know social media crap people talking about whatever they see in the news and i'm just like why are we not all talking about the fucking 144 unexplained ufos like we should all be more concerned uh so that's the whole reason you're here i just wanted to get your take on it oh my take oh it's all it's all male tech it's all male tech <laughs> Uh, no, for real. Like, how, how have you been doing, man? It's uh, it's been like almost a year, not quite a year since the last time you were on the show. Um, it might have been. Yeah, it's it's hard to keep track. It's been a it's been a crazy year, obviously, both uh, in terms of game development and in terms of everything else. Yeah. Um, but no, I've been good. Uh, things have been going well. Um, it's been uh, it's been sort of an interesting process, uh, game wise, to sort of have this longer time period where it's like gradually move towards a larger and larger scale production. Uh, mm -hmm. So that's been sort of an interesting experience. Um, and uh, yeah, it, it's actually kind of like things, when, when you do this kind of thing um, and when you when you take this like, when you take a solo project and suddenly it's like a, a big production, it's a larger game, mm -hmm. uh, that process is not necessarily what you expect. Um, like so much of that is essentially reevaluating what you have from the ground up um, and, and like in the scope of a larger production. Uh, so that's been like kind of a huge part of what I've been up to in terms of core decay um, in the last year or so. Um, so sort of trying to figure out now that we have a, a larger team and more resources, um, 
what can we do that I wouldn't have been able to do myself in a solo project? Um, and what shouldn't we do? Because it would be feature creep or it would be, you know, going way too far. Um, so that's been sort of a, a process that has been taking up a lot of time in this, in this sort of past year. Um, but it's an interesting one and it sort of constantly forces you to think about, you know, what is the vision that you originally had for this game and what, what among those things did you have to cut away for resource constraints? And, you know, so, so, so all of those kind of things have been occupying me a lot um, for quite a while now. Um, and and the, tr the truth of it is that looking at quarter K, it's still, I would say it's earlier in development than a lot of people would think. Um, you know, so a lot of what's going on right now, it's still, it's not pre-production exactly, but it's still sort of a lot of these kind of design processes that we're occupying ourselves with right now. It's sort of what should the baseline uh, sort of gameplay loop actually constitute in a way it's actually more fundamental than uh, you know, like then you might think when you look at the like, game footage and, and the trailers that we are putting out and, and so on. Um, but it's a really interesting process and it's like a continuous process. Uh, so there has been a lot of that going on, um, which is also kind of why we have been fairly light on promotion within the last year. I mean, there, there have been a few things where we just started coming out. Like I wrote a few, I don't know if you saw them. Uh, I wrote a few devlog posts. Um, I put them up on cordicay.com, but also like 3D Ramps' website and they were posted on Twitter. Um, so I've been doing a little bit of that, but for the most part, it's been fairly quiet in terms of reaching out to, like, to the public and, and showcasing, hey, this is what we've been working on. And it's mostly because of that, because so many of these things that we have actually occupying ourselves with as a team has been less about like concretely we are pushing out all of this like a game content internally and more about sort of the underlying framework that everything else and then is sort of built upon. Yeah, it's it's one of those things where we didn't really know when, when you were brought on with 3D Realms how far along the game even was at that point. And obviously it was pretty early. And Fred has a tendency to do that from what I'm just like <laughs> I'm seeing. It's like that looks cool. Let's let's pick them up. And then like <laughs> and so that when we as the public, you know, see the announcement, we're like, oh this game must be like happening. They must have shown them a fucking playable demo that kicked ass and they're ready to roll. And in reality it's like Right. Uh no. Like you you now you have an opportunity to like start even figuring out what the game is going to be. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and I mean, I can, I can also, I can reveal a little bit of that sort of process also um, like being brought on like this, obviously, like, even though I, I'm going to take your word for it, that that's something that Fred tends to do, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, there is still some degree of like, you know, obviously he wants to make sure that this not all smoke and mirrors. Right. Right. Um, so, I did give him a playable demo, you know, and we did talk about that a lot. And it was, it's, but I think he also recognized that when it comes to this kind of game, when it comes to like an immersive sim, something kind of more story focused, Fred and company were kind of keen on making sure that there is also a story component, right? Mm -hmm. So at the time, we also talked a lot about things like, okay, but what is the actual game story and narrative? Like, what is going to play out throughout the game? You know, so that was actually a surprisingly big part of my talking to 3D Realms at the time, which makes perfect sense, of course, because there is so much to a game like this that's really all about 
uh, like the narration and the, the world building. Um, but but yeah, as you say, it's interesting because even though there was or still is, still exists, um, a playable demo that was like the basis for that, the trailer that went out at last year's um, Run Steep and so on, like that, that's existed. Um, when we man like when we can escalate to a large team, it basically means you take that and you look at it and you reevaluate every single part of it in the context of, you know, these things can be redone and it can be redone in a way that more clearly speaks to what you're trying to achieve, um, which also involves removing some things. I mean, it's kind of, I remember when we talked last time, I was talking a little bit about how when I was working on it for a couple of years solo, it started out way more arcade-like, right? It was more of a, I described it as a boots on the ground descent, um, but that was sort of, it was much more of a retro shooter and much less of an immersive sim. And the core reason for that was when I was working solo, I just didn't have the resources to, to, to make a fully fledged immersive sim. So when we have been started to work now this year internally on this in a larger team, that's the core question. Like, you know, we want to move this as close as possible to uh, like an archetype of an immersive sim. Think Deus Ex um, or you know, System Shock, what have you. Um, and what can we do to achieve that goal and what shouldn't we do? Um, and a good example of that, for instance, is uh, we have still decided that there are not going to be like large social hubs, um, say akin to, um, well, I mean, if you take Deus Ex as an example, we have like the New York area, we have like Hong Kong, we have those like areas where it's like, you know, there isn't really any, combat you're just there's just a ton of npcs there's just non-combat content really expansive areas yeah. and we're not really doing that because it's just out of scope essentially like you could do it and you could tie it into the narrative and it would be a nice experience but you also kind of have to stop yourself somewhere and say we're looking a little bit more at say system shock when it comes to that particular part um so you can restrain yourself a little bit uh but what we are doing and what hasn't what hasn't been seen anywhere so far um is are things like non-hostile NPCs, um, things like, you know, like dialogue systems, uh, things like non-lethal combat. So those kind of things are things that we have talked about and have decided to, okay, now we're going to bring these things in because they are very, um, they're a great part of like the overall experience to have that sort of, um, like gameplay experience where you're really free to make your own goals and tackle things in like, the exact way you want to do it, um, but that's that's sort of the the balance of been working. Like, how far are we going to take this? Are we going to? We're not going to go as far as to have huge, vast social hubs, but we are going to have NPCs you can talk to and interact with, or, or engage in combat if you really want to. But but you know the point is you have the, the range. Um, but that's just one thing. But there are a lot of those kind of things that we have been sort of discussing and trying to bring bring forward um but this also actually interesting enough it also means removing some things because if you're doing that then maybe what you had before that fit into the experience really well now feels say oddly arcade like and you, you know you want to get rid of it because you want something that's a little more grounded or uh you know feels a little bit more um like rooted in uh, like that sort of near future near sci-fi futuristic setting um so, well, for instance, okay, a good example, uh, the arsenal of weapons, right? 
Um, the original selection of weapons in the game, I would say, was more out there sci-fi than what we're ending up with today. Um, so there are, you know, some things um, uh, that are uh, like, you know, things like energy guns and things like that, right? We're kind of moving away from because this setting is now more suitable to having more contemporary weapons um, just because it just fits better into the storyline as we, as we look at it today. Uh, so there are a lot of things like that. It has helped, though, to have, um, like, even from day one, even before, like, even from more than a year ago, the entire, and I think I mentioned this last time, too, like, the entire storyline, the entire world, that's already set. Like, that's done. <laughs> I mean, obviously, there is going to be a huge amount of writing done in service of that, but we still have that sense of, like, start to finish. This is exactly what's going to happen and, and all that. So that's a really useful useful. Uh, sort of guide and in ways to sort of keep yourself focused. It's um something you were saying earlier about how you know you're trying to implement different ways for you to tackle the uh, the different parts of the game. So, for instance, converse, conversation or non-lethal combat, things like that. Uh, with any you know true immersive sim, you have to have some resemblance to like an RPG in terms of you know statistics you know, leveling your character in such way. Like, so let's say you're having a conversation and your character, you know, you level up their intelligence or their, you know, uh, I don't know, conversation skill or whatever you want to call it. Uh, and you can avoid combat through that. Uh, that's another tactic and another immersion tool. Um, or in, in the case of non-lethal combat, um, one, one thing that really always sticks out to me with that particular route is it has to be, equally as rewarding to right. use that tool as if as it would be if you just killed everybody um, yeah uh and to add to that if i may it's it has to be equally rewarding in a mechanical sense as well as a narrative or as a um uh, I, I don't want to say emotional sense but like in terms of how it feels um how satisfying it feels to do right yeah um so like on one hand yeah like if you have an experience system as you say um, you know, you might gain experience points for killing someone. You might also gain experience points for seeking a, a non-lethal approach or for doing like more of an exploration-based sort of um, uh, that way to do things. Um, and there is a constant, um, I would say that there is also, there is a constant dissonance there that's always a challenge in, in games like these where uh, the entire premise of these kind of games is rooted in uh, things being believable, um, and it might be like, it might be like believable in the context of the world, but but believable nonetheless. Like it has to feel logical, it has to make sense, um, in a way that's a little bit different from like say a, a fantasy RPG. So you have that very difficult. Um, uh, you find yourself in a difficult situation where uh, you might. It's hard for the player to separate their own skill and the character's skill, right? Um, and that's that's something that's, like, you have to find a middle ground, and that's actually really challenging. Um, again, like, Deus Ex being a fantastic example, where the original Deus Ex has it, um, things like shooting skills, right? So you can put points into your, your ability to use pistols. Mm -hmm. And if you haven't, you're really inaccurate. But you might be really accurate as a player, but your character of, of JC Denton is not, right? 
and that kind of takes you out of the experience to some degree. And it's it's the same thing when it's like the opposite. Like if you've trained up your pistol skill, you're supposed to be a really accomplished agent, but maybe you actually have terrible aim as a player, and it doesn't feel like that. So, uh, and and that's just one example from one game, you know. But but you're also you're always going to find yourself in that sort of difficult balance. Like how many RPG elements do you want to put in? Because if you go too heavy in the role playing routes, um, you know you lose that first person shooter inherent immersion uh, that comes from like uh, the controls being an extension of you, and you can really see yourself in the character's shoes. Um, and that is also a curve, right? Like, sure, your character levels up, but you also get better at shooting because you, as a player, get better at like getting used to the gunplay within the game. So. Right. Um, yeah, it's a constant balance, and it's a, it's kind of a tricky balance. Um, but that's also partly why in Core Decay we've sort of opted to also do um, a system that's slightly more skill based. Um, so, you know, like there aren't player skills as such in the game. Um, you do gain experience points and level up. That that is a thing, but it's more in service. It's more of just as a pacing tool, more so than it is supposed to be a role-playing element in a way. Yeah. Um, so, you know, like your ability to fire a gun and like the, the accuracy of your gun um, is more tied to say whether you're moving or not uh, than it is to like a particular skill in using a particular weapon. Now, you can still install, say, cybernetic implants and increase your accuracy. But the baseline is still one of you're gonna be fairly accurate, like from the from the get go. Um, so so that's a way where it actually differs a little bit from something like like those X where it's um, it's a little bit more tied to the player skill as opposed to like a, a layer of role playing elements. And the role playing elements that do exist, um, they're all without exception. And and this is actually kind of an important distinction, like. In, in a game like those X, your, your skills that you increase, that you put points into, they exist on an abstract plane, right? Like, right. Uh, you know, like J.C. Denton wouldn't go up to his brother and say, hey, I just leveled up my pistol skill, <laughs> right? <laughs> but, but, you know, so but it's an abstraction. It's, it's a layer that exists outside of the game world. Um, there is no such thing in, in Core Decay. So, like, you can get better at aiming but that would be through installing a physical implant that gets you better at aiming right there are no there are no systems in the game again apart from the, the act of gaining experience points which even even that is actually somewhat explained as a narrative element um more specifically like your, your body is adjusting to your implants right mm -hmm. um so it's, it's kind of literal experience um but there, there there's nothing in the game that exists on that level of abstraction um so and it's the same thing with like you're also limited by uh, the size of your inventory and like the weapons you can, the weapons or equipment you find you have to fit into into your inventory and you have a limited amount of inventory space. So that is also a vector of of like player challenge and strategy, but it still makes physical sense because choosing what to physically bring with you is still something that you do like in the game world. Uh, so this is obviously a very deliberate decision, and and one way where it does, uh, like, it's a surprising amount of times, like, I have to 
bring up when I talk about this game to people like, well, yeah, it's, it's heavily inspired by Deus Ex, but, it, but it's not actually Deus Ex 5, right? <laughs> um, and that is a good example of that also, where it's like it actually deviates quite a bit from that formula where it's sort of going out of its way to not have those kind of layers of RPG elements that are yeah. completely separated from the actual game world. In terms of like the the upgrades and, and especially when you're talking about things like accuracy, first thing that comes to my mind is like, yeah, you definitely don't want to like have this arbitrary like thing that just makes your aim go all over the place because you're shitty at leveling up. But it can be really subtle things like, you know, like how much um how much uh recoil can you handle? Like I mean right. these are pretty common tropes that people you know, military simulators have been doing forever and um you know your speed your uh your heartbeat kind of stuff like so heartbeat suppressant that keeps you from like having wobble or whatever and that's there there's so much fun you can have with that and and we go my yeah. the court goes way in depth with that kind of stuff too like um you know like you do have this separated health system right so like if your arm takes damage you do wobble a lot more because it's harder to keep your arm still when your arm is damaged, right? Yeah. Um, it even goes as far, and I, I, I probably have mentioned this, if not here, then elsewhere. Uh, it even goes as far as to um, make it so that if you lose your like gun arm, you actually switch to using your opposite arm and the, the weapon actually like switches position and you're now holding it with the opposite arm and it's on the opposite side of the screen with a vast accuracy penalty because you, you lost your arm. You, you can't use it, right? Um, same thing that like you lose your legs, you, you have to crawl, you can't, you can't, you can't stand, you can't jump and so on. So uh, like what, if you, if you lose your arm or your leg, what is the, uh, how do you heal that? Do you um, feel like... Yeah, there are a few ways. Um, I mean, we, we, there are what essentially amounts to medkits, right? So there are consumable items that you can use to heal yourself up. Yeah. Um, that to, to restore functionality, but you could also do it at like stationary locations, like, um, you know, like a, like a medical station kind of thing. Um, that also restores that, um, but it's all consumable, and that's also something um, that's. Uh, and, and this is I'm almost certain to mention at some point before, like a, a very very significant pillar in this game is um, scarcity driven player choice, right? Um, because if I may like criticize the Deus Ex series a bit, the the, the late the last few games they had this thing where. Um, you're having a hacking minigame, right? Uh, and it's a perfectly respectable hacking minigame. The problem is that since you breach like keypads or computers and whatnot by doing a minigame, there is never a reason not to do it, right? So it just turns into, if not a chore, at least like a non-interesting uh, player decision. Um, but if you have, if you make everything is be based on consumables and resources, you as the player, you have to make that strategic choice of do I want to spend this to do that, or is that better served for later, right? So you might actually choose not to unlock a door or hack a computer. Um, and that is, like, it, the choices are much more interesting because there are actual choices. Um, so that's, like, really strong. And that applies to that kind of thing. Like, you do have, you have to spend a resource to hack a computer. You can't just do it. Like it's also gated behind a, um, a cybernetic implant, but you also have a resource cost, uh, and you have to spend, say, a medkit to heal yourself. You have to spend this to do that, and so on. You have to spend ammo to fire your weapon, right? But they're all transactions, right? That's something that uh, I, I know. Like when you study game design, that's something that you 
you get introduced to like very early on that it's all transactional. Like when you're in combat, you're trading your health and some ammo for the enemy to go away, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, it's, and that's when it really comes down to it mechanically, that's no different from trading a lockpick to open a door, right? Like it's all it's all just transactions. Um, and so it kind of fits into that existing pattern of like combat is one thing that costs resources to get you somewhere, but there are a lot of other things. It's one of the things that distinguishes, I think, an immersive sim from necessarily just an RPG. I mean, so many times an RPG, uh, Deus Ex, for instance, you know, when you're hacking a computer, and it's just as simple as like, do you have a lockpick? Do you have the skill? And it rolls the dice, and if the number's right, then you get to go. You know, you open it up. Um, the physical act of like unlocking a door or hacking a computer or whatever, like they have to make up some sort of way to make you feel immersed in that without obviously being able to like literally pick it or hack it um and right that results in things like mini games or, or like the the infamous like bioshock <laughs> i was just gonna yeah. say yeah the, the, the pipe pass and i'm not averse to mini games like yeah. I, for instance i really like the lock picking mini game in well they first did it in fallout 3 but then they also put it in skyrim and in um fallout 4 uh, where you have this like rotating cylinder and, and you have to like but what i like about it is it's very fast it's very simple it, it doesn't really take much of your time. So it, it is just this tiny little skill gate that's unintrusive enough to still kind of fit within the game. Um, now, no such thing in Core Decay, but but I, I do like minigames are placed some, in some places, right? Um, but unfortunately, a lot of the time, they don't really do what they're kind of supposed to in the first place, that they kind of take you out of the world more so than they, they yep. bring you into it. Um, and again, like those like hacking minigames in, in Deus Ex, the three and four, they're actually not bad. Like they feel kind of cyberpunk-esque, you know, like they have a cool aesthetic to them. I don't really have a problem with them mechanically by themselves. It's more like how they fit into the bigger picture. Um, but yeah, but but anyway, yeah. So so that's not really a thing um, in, in, in Core Decay. Now, what, what is a thing is um, it's not really a minigame, but... When you when you specifically hack when you hack computers, there is a little terminal interface, and you actually type in like terminal commands, um, which some people might actually consider a minigame a little bit, but it's not actually. It's really just like a, a different um, like GUI front end more more or less. Like it's a different interface, but it's really it's not actually tied to any sort of mechanics. So I always like puzzles that essentially anyone can do, um, like like riddles, you know or guessing games right. or anything, something like that. They're just It's not... Um, it's just, okay, Skyrim, you mentioned the lock picking in Skyrim. Like, first of all, that is not how you pick a lock. There's no, <laughs> like, magic angle at which you hold the nope. pick that opens the door. Or it's, but, it, and it's hard because... I, so my friend uh, Donkey, who hangs out in, in the keep all the time, he's one of our guys, he... He is a locksmith, and he just can't stand that kind of shit. You know, or like right. when you watch a movie, and they just like I can see that. Yeah, walk up with a rake and jam it in there a few times, and like they pick the lock, and like that's just not how it works. And not everybody's a locksmith, and it doesn't really matter. But is the is it fun to do? Is it you know is it a game, essentially? Uh, and in Skyrim, the way that they solve this is essentially your skill, um, is attached to how durable your lock picks are. And, you know, if you're really bad at it, that you'll break them. And then that's a resource that you spend every time you break one. So it kind of forces you to get better at doing the task. And by the end of it, you're pretty much in it. Most people who do it or 
expert like at you know however you hold your controller angling that thing just right and getting the sensitivity just right it's just a one of the few things that i think that game really did well I, i'm not a huge right. fan, but. yeah it's uh and i mean i think the reason it works pretty well in, in, in skyrim is like it's obviously an abstraction right it's like they're not trying to say the character is doing this weird thing with this lock that somehow magically works the way that's you know you know it, it's yeah. But but it's an abstraction. It's not intrusive. So so yeah, I, I do I do like that. Um, I was never as fan as much of a fan of like a terminal uh, minigame they have in Fallout, where like it's um, uh, where you just like have to match words uh, because then you kind of go to the character a little bit. Of it. Like it feels a little bit too gamified. It doesn't really make sense that this would right. be tied to hacking a terminal and things like that. But but all of these kind of things. It's basically why I decided right away that like okay, look, according to K, you're not gonna have anything like that whatsoever. In fact. Even, and once again, going back to this idea of like not having any layers of like um, abstract mechanics that wouldn't tie into the physical game world, the player character also isn't really doing any hacking per se. Um, like they would use a cybernetic module that they have installed in their in their brain, right? That basically right. connects to the computer and automatically hacks it, right? So there is no character skill involved like in the narrative there, there, there is nothing it's not this implication that the character is somehow tapping away on the keyboard and doing this like really fancy hacking no they're plugging in an implant and you see the implant work in front of you so it's kind of the same thing it's like there is never a and this applies to mostly everything like unless you do it as a player your character doesn't do anything with, with the exception of that dialogue um but again, that's kind of a reoccurring theme. It, it, it ties to that sort of same same mentality where you really want to be. I I, hes, I, I hesitate to say realistic and and like going for realism because that's not really uh, what we're looking like. It's not about realism. Uh, you look at the game like say Escape from Tarkov, then it's about realism. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, uh, and it does that well. Don't get me wrong, but but it's it's more about. A very similitude, you know. It's about um, logical cohesion, uh, like within within its own world, and, and that's really it's a huge huge focus. Um, and the nice thing about that being a huge focus, like a core pillar, is that it makes so many things so easy. <laughs> like from a design viewpoint, right? Like you don't have to think too much in terms of like, oh, is this overpowered? No, you, you go okay. And this is actually something that, uh, at least I personally feel inspired by. Um, escape from Tarkov um, specifically, um, as it happens. If you have if you have something in the game, like you have a weapon, and it, it works in a way that feels logical, and you feel like okay, but this might be a little bit too powerful. Um, example: Maybe you have a missile launcher, um, and you have a missile launcher, and you shoot like a wooden door. Your expectation would be the door would break, right? And so the door breaks. Uh, you shoot a missile at, you know. Um, and like a, say a humanoid enemy of any kind, your expectation is that when you shoot a missile at something that looks somewhat squishy, they will die. Mm -hmm. um, and so say you do that and you play test it and you're like, okay, but this is actually kind of a problem because it's too powerful. You know, like you can just shoot missiles at everything. So why wouldn't you want to do that? So in games that are a little bit more abstract, like say arena shooters, um, your inclination would be to say, okay, let's just make the missile do less damage, right? Let's let's say like maybe 
maybe you can take two missiles and not die. And in a lot of games, that works really well because, you know, that's sort of, you have this built-in expectation of like, this is more of a, like an arcade-like experience or this is, you know. Um, in this case, though, you kind of want to go the opposite way. So you want to say, no, 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 the, the, it's a missile. It will kill things. <laughs> just make them rarer, right? Let's just yeah. say, you know, there are actually very few around. So yeah, sure, it'll kill almost anything you can see. But you want to be really careful about when you use them. Like, do you want to waste this missile to breach this door? Maybe there will be a, a, like a security bot next door. You know. Um, and again, that's something that escaped from Tarkov uh, more so than any other game I've ever played. Uh, that's super well. Like they have things like night vision equipment uh, that makes you able to see through like pure darkness. And this is a game where, like, when it's nighttime, it's literally pitch black because again, they're actually going for literal realism. Um, and so you would think that having night vision equipment in a multiplayer game where knights are pitch black would make you incredibly overpowered. Like it would be so, it would make it so powerful, it's not even funny. Yes, it does. But they're also incredibly expensive, right? You have to spend so much in-game uh, currency um, to actually obtain one. And if you die, you lose it. So, you know, they, they don't, they keep things working in a way that makes logical sense and they use scarcity for balance. Um, so that's that's something that's definitely very much a, a part of, of this game as well, where that's sort of really the cornerstone. And to be fair, I mean, games like like Deus Ex also did that to some degree. They were a little bit less so, but still, um, you know, like it's sort of the antithesis of a game like Doom Eternal. Um, like you want to be out of ammo, you know, you want to have very very little resources to work with. And, and when like, should I really spend this missile here? Should I really spend my last round of nine millimeter bullets? And you know, so on. It's, it's odd because essentially Doom Eternal does make you like it, the game wants you to run out of resources. It just wants to make you make the decisions about what you're going to do about it. Are you going to go farm for more? Are you going to switch weapons? Move here, move there. Much, much faster. Like right, fast, and, to, in my I, opinion, but. I, I, I full disclaimer: I haven't actually played Doom Eternal. I've played Doom 2016, but all, all, all I know from Doom Eternal is just you know spending some time seeing people play it. Yeah. But my impression is that it's, you know, it's very, I, I'm not going to say like over-engineered because a lot of people really enjoy it. So obviously it's like, objectively speaking, it's not necessarily bad. But in terms of like my, my personal preference, I just feel like um, it feels too gamified in a way, you know, um, to me personally, where it's like, it almost takes you out of, of the experience a little bit feeling like, oh, the designers accounted for like every single yeah. thing all along the way, you know. But again, that's what they're going for. So I'm, I'm, this is, I'm not going to turn it into like a doom eternal critique here. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I don't want to, the last podcast I did was just like, we, we went deep into this and I, I, there's only so much I can beat harp on that particular thing. Um, to this audience, I guess like <laughs> they're going to get tired of hearing it. Like we get yeah. it. You hate it. Okay. Move on. <laughs> yeah. But, no, yeah I, I agree with you though. It is a, uh, but again, and I'm not saying like one approach is better than the other. I'm just saying like there are different kinds of experiences, and you want you want the mechanics to fit the experience you're going for. Basically, um, there is a flip side of that though, and it means that sometimes you will run into a situation as a player, say where you're just you're out of ammo, you're out of health, you, you can't proceed. Right? Like there is really no way to do it because you've been giving you've been given so little resources, and you've been so careless with them that you're now in a situation you can't win. Um, 
And it's easier to paint yourself into that corner when you're focusing so much on that sort of logic-driven like resource allocation. But I, I, I personally, I feel like at some point you just have to say, well, too bad, you know, just be a little nerdy safe. You, 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 you messed up. Just, just learn from your mistakes and, and go back as, as a player. Um, you know, you don't want to reach it all the time because that would be poorly designed. But if a player occasionally just, the whole point of scarcity is that you can mismanage your resources. Otherwise, there is there is no point. Yeah, that's one thing that Doom Eternal did really well is to, to say a compliment <laughs> incoming is that they don't give you that choice. Uh, you, don't, you don't get to just squander your resources and then end up having to load up a save file. They'll take care of it for you. A monster will kill you within seconds. Right. No I, mean, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's but I mean, even Doom 2016 to me was a little bit like that, where it's like you could always do these glory kills and you could always regain health. And yeah, I mean, sure, it felt visceral, but you also never really felt like, oh no, I'm going to run out of ammo because, or, you know, this will run, I'm going to run out of health because I don't know. But again, different experience. And really, the original Doom and like these newer Doom games, they're apples and oranges. Like the original Doom is way more of a horror game in a way. I mean, maybe horror is the wrong word to use, but I mean, to me, the core difference, it's the same as the difference between Diablo 2 and 3, right? Like in the original Doom, in, the, in Diablo 1 and 2, you're intentionally made to feel vulnerable, right? Um, like the whole point is that everything around you is stronger than you. You might die at any moment. You, you, you feel like it's a reverse power fantasy. And then we have Diablo 3, we have the later Doom games, they are an actual mm -hmm. power fantasy. <laughs> you know, like it's the pure opposite. Like everyone else around you is weaker than you. You're just, you know, you're, you're just there for the, the spectacle of it. And But again, one is not better than the other. They just appeal to different tastes, at least in my mind. Uh, they're just they're trying to do different things. For sure. Yeah. I, no, no disagreement. <laughs> um, like, but... I, I like MSIMs. I like Doom. I loved Doom 2016. It's exactly. No, I, I enjoy that time as well. I, I will say, though, going like a little bit more back, back on topic, yeah. um, one nice thing about having a game, like an immersive sim that's very scarcity-driven, that where you almost always have, you always feel underpowered. Like you feel like you have to rely on your wits to survive because everything around you is you know, more powerful than you. The upside to that, and, and simultaneously, curiously enough, the, the greatest design flaw in every single immersive sim, mm -hmm. um, is that if you actually do focus on getting better at combat, right? So take again, take Cortica as an example. You focus on installing only cybernetic implants and make you better at combat, right? They might increase your health. They might like increase your armor. They might, they might make you more durable. Uh, they might improve your aim. You know, do this and that. Um, you only focus on filling your inventory up to the brim with like weapons and ammunition as opposed to like other useful items. In other words, you make the conscious decision to be, okay, this playthrough of the game, I'm going to be all about combat. I'm going to be all about, you know, the violent solution to your problems. You feel really badass, right? <laughs> because you know the opposite. You, you have that frame of reference. You started out and you know that the baseline experience is one of being vulnerable. So that yeah. if you consciously work towards not being vulnerable, when you are like when you reach that point, you feel so much more strong. But and again, that's something Diablo three in my mind didn't do very well. Like you started out being like super powerful, and so when you got more powerful, it just kind of fizzled out because you're already you know. Um, so that's that's kind of a nice. But as I said, it's also uh, it's nice when it when it happens like that. 
but in my mind, like the single greatest issue of every single immersive sim, from Deus Ex to System Shock to um, the new Prey to Dishonored, um, Thief series, basically every, well, maybe not Thief as much, uh, but basically like every immersive sim that's ever been made, the, the difficulty curve is almost always off because you you eventually go past this hump of I'm feeling vulnerable, I'm feeling like I, I'm running out of resources, and you almost always amass way more resources than you know what to do with. And suddenly the game becomes too easy. Um that you have you have too many things to play around with. You never run into a situation where you actually question yourself, should they engage in combat? No, of course you should. You have tons of health, you have tons of medkits, you have tons of ammo. And there is no easy way around that. Like, because again, every single game like this runs into that. Like the last third of those sex, you have tons of stuff. You have a sword that can kill anyone in a single hit. You know, the new prey. Last third of the game, you're filled to the brim with weapons. You're so used to fighting the Typhon. It's like, you know, um, and it's the same for every single one of these games. And it's kind of unfortunate because it's just not as satisfying anymore because you kind of, you're not, you're no longer in this space of, I have to be really cautious. So I, I mean, at least personally, I, I enjoy these games so much more in their beginning stages because it's the same reason. Like I, I've played a bunch of Fallout 4 uh, on their, on its, um, uh, the survival mode they added, where it's like you're way more vulnerable. Uh, you die from just a few hits, so do your enemies, and so on. You have to reload way earlier, save if you die, and so on. And the first like five hours in Fallout 4 survival mode is always an absolute blast. It's so much fun because like finding a pistol is like the best thing you could possibly have happen to you because you, you don't have any weapons, you know. And, and, and everything you find is like super exciting and super valuable because you have so little resources. Then you get your power armor and you get, you know, a dozen weapons and it just kind of, again, it just kind of fizzles out. So to me, like one of the biggest challenges mechanically making immersive sims is like avoiding that, is to keep that curve flat. <laughs> um, but it's hard because if you design around the player always picking whatever option is going to give them the most combat options, then the players who aren't as much into combat, they're suddenly underpowered. Right, uh, so it's it's tricky. <laughs> so, um, what is your philosophy on like how you you intend to avoid that issue, perhaps with Cortique, if at all? That is a very good question, isn't it? <laughs> um, I think what it really comes down to is um, you, you want to limit the amount of components that make you permanently, objectively stronger. That, that's that's a big one, right? Um, uh, because again, uh, you have, uh, you have something that the regeneration, um, um, what's it called? <laughs> uh, well, the, um, the, the regeneration cybernetic in, in Dead Six. Um, that is basically what, what, as soon as you get it, it breaks, it breaks your game because you suddenly can regenerate at all times, at any time. Combat isn't challenging because you can keep regenerating, right? So okay, let's not do that. Let's not even give you the option. Let's 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 cut down on almost everything that just makes you permanently, objectively more powerful for the rest of the game. So that's a big one. And okay. sure, you're still going to have things like okay, you're going to be a little bit more resilient to damage. Sure, you're going to have a little bit more health. Okay, because it still makes a difference. Just not a game-breaking difference. Just not not enough to tick that 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 balance so much. 
so that's thing number one. You just avoid uh, those like really sweeping things. Uh, you pick it and then you kind of set. It's, there's a surprising amount of those in like so many of these games. Um, then what you also want to do is you really want to limit um, the like the resources the player can keep with them any given time, right? Because as soon as you can start stocking up over a really long time period, that's where these kind of problems start to emerge. Um, and that's a lot harder to do. Uh, I think practically speaking, one of the things that Corticade does do is you have a comparatively limited amount of inventory space. That's one thing, right? So throughout the game, you are expected to say, well, I've had this, this um, say, assault rifle and 300 rounds of ammunition with me for a long time now, but I just found this other thing I kind of want. I'm just going to throw... I'm going to throw this out because it just doesn't fit. Um, and and so what you're doing is, you know, you're getting rid of that built-up advantage because, you know, you're... And obviously that's not unique. That's always something that you do in these kind of games. But you want to sort of turn that dial down where you actually are really quite limited in whatever you can carry with you at any given time so that, you know, you can't stock up on things as much. But uh, all that aside... Uh, then you start to put in like little uh, counterpoints to, to to sort of go in the opposite direction of, of this tendency. For instance, and this is a this is a surprisingly big one, uh, making ammo take up inventory space, right? Um, and you think, well, yeah, doesn't plenty of games do that? It's surprisingly few, right? Uh, it, it's it's considerably more common uh, to just have them not take up space because it's a hassle for the player to manage, right? right. But if you have um, like if you have a grid inventory and you have, say, a handgun that takes up four times four squares on your inventory or slots. Okay, now you have your ammo takes up two, two times one square. So the ammo is actually half a gun. So it's actually quite significant, right? And then maybe you have larger rounds for an assault rifle. They actually take up twice as much space, you know. So you actually have to sacrifice quite a lot of inventory space just to carry ammunition around. Yeah, System Shock 2 makes you do that so much. Like you just really have to decide, like, well, right, do I right. need this ammo more or that ammo more? Or even sacrifice a whole gun. Exactly, whole exactly. Useful item for the sake of, like, well, I'm going to need this later. Yeah. Exactly. And and, and then notably, Deus Ex 1 does not. There is that no ammunition is not a thing in terms of managing space. Um, and and it, it doesn't work. Like, again, like, I, I will be the first one to praise. Physics one, obviously, but but among its flaws, like among the things that it does do kind of poorly, is, you know, maybe you never were really into shotguns, so you never picked up a shotgun in, in Physics one, but you do pick up shotgun shells because to, you know you don't have to worry about it. Why would you not pick up a shotgun shell? So then halfway through the game, you're like, huh, I should try out the shotgun. You pick up a shotgun and you have an all nigh unlimited to play of shotgun shells because you know you've been picking them up all this time, and they've just been keeping adding up, and and again it contributes to that sort of curve. Um, yeah. so, but to, to more sort of concretely answer your question so far, it's not really doing any one single thing, but rather just kind of taking into account this issue in, in all aspects of, of like how it's designed. Um, and hopefully, I mean, I don't think you can ever escape this entirely. I, I really don't think so. And you don't want to, because to some degree, you want the player to feel more powerful towards the end of the game than they did in the beginning. Um, with some exceptions, but 
most of the time, the story and the narrative, it's, it's in favor of that, right? Like, sure, if you've upgraded your body with cybernetic implants, if you have gotten experienced at shooting things for 20 hours, of course, you're going to feel yeah. more powerful at the end, you know, but you want it to be, you know, on a reasonable level. <laughs> I mean, uh, in the name of the game, Deus Ex, is th this idea of like becoming God, right? Or, or and yep. so if you feel like a God at the end of the game, you're supposed to because you've been accumulating all of these things that should canonically be doing that. Right. Like the w the Witcher Three is like one of the best in terms, in maybe not the best by your standard, but you oh, know, I love by the end of the, yeah, by the end of the game, if you like uh, build up your your chemistry to a certain point, I mean, you right. could just walk up to a village full of bad guys that would have killed you in the beginning of the game, throw a bomb at them from a distance, and then yep. rack up. You know, and that feels amazing. That feels like I've put so much effort right. in working. And, and that's the core difference too, because in an open world fantasy game, for the most part, that's a good thing, right? Yeah. Like you've spent all this time doing so, and it, it makes sense. Like you know, it, it feels satisfying, and it, it it's it's a fun thing to do, and it, it is this thing that kind of ties into the rest of the mechanics. It just works less well in you know an immersive thing, which is by very nature it's linear by comparison, right? Yep. Um, so it doesn't really, but but as you say, like we have Witcher Three, we have like the Elder Scrolls. Well, okay, we don't really have the Elder Scrolls series because they actually kind of do the opposite, and it really sucks. <laughs> uh, it's the whole thing of like Oblivion, and you've leveled up, and suddenly you go like you're super powerful, and you go to a bandit camp, and they have like dead with weapons, and uh, you know like yeah, it just doesn't make any sense. <laughs> that's that's the whole deal. Is like uh, you have to find some way to scale your game appropriately and it, it, zelda uh, or i should say breath of the wild would do this that witcher 3 definitely did this M many rpgs do that where it's just like as you become stronger the enemies also become stronger right. uh, dark souls scrap that they're just like we're just <laughs> every enemy is maniacally crazily difficult right. to beat and we're just going to come up with different ways to fuck you until you figure out how to beat this to be fair like um, in defense of oblivion mm-hmm I actually quite like it. I just think you have to view it from like a completely different lens than you view most open world uh, fantasy games. It's like Oblivion, yeah, sure, it doesn't make a lot of sense. It's not actually like if you try to interpret it like a traditional fantasy uh, open world game, the fact that everyone levels with you at all times, it just feels weird and it's not very satisfying. But then you start to see it as a game of how can I build my character so that I stay like suitably powerful as my enemies also do so. And it becomes more of a puzzle in a way, you, you know, say you play it on a high difficult level enough for this to be an interesting challenge. It's actually pretty fun. Like, you know, Oh, I have to make sure that my athletics doesn't go too high because then my other skills will be too low by comparison because the enemies will have leveled up. And like, when you view it more abstract like that, it's actually pretty fun. It's just that you have to look at it so differently than you would most most RPGs, and unfortunately, you lose a little bit of the role-playing part of it that way. Um, but it's still, it's. I actually had the same. Now, okay, now I'm going way off topic, but I I had the same sort of revelation when, because I tend to go this route of I always I always role-play, right? I play yeah. something like uh, Fallout New Vegas, and I'm like, okay, this character have these and these ideals, and therefore they're gonna join this faction, and you know, like have, make these decisions and so on, because that's just the way I kind of live through games in a way. Uh, so. Almost every single time I have a potential, and this even extends to things like RTS games, you know, 
I, I remember like, you know, when I was growing up, when I was like a teenager, I would play um, things like Age of Empires with my brother, you know. Uh, he would win 99.9% of the time because I was more concerned with like the aesthetics of placing my houses in like a nice way and like, oh, this should go by the tree because it looks like, you know, uh, that kind of thing, right? However, uh, you know, I, I've always had kind of a mild interest in like Forex games, say, you know, like turn-based strategy, say Civilization and, and, and whatnot. Uh, Heroes of Might and Magic, those kind of games. Uh, and most recently, like the Endless series, for instance, like Endless Space and Endless Legend. Uh, but it was still kind of mild into like I never quite got into Forex games. I always kind of lost interest after a little while. Like once I familiarized myself with the game, I got kind of bored at it. Then I realized that I'm I shouldn't be role-playing this. Like I should treat them like a board game. I should crank up the difficulty way up, and I should say, I shouldn't play according to what I think like this faction would do. Right. I should actually try to win. Like I should try to analyze it, like from a mechanical, from a purely mechanical standpoint, how should I try to win as a board game? And then I started enjoying 4X games way more because I didn't role play. So it's just kind of interesting. It's like any other genre, I would be like, no, I really enjoy this when I can play it not as a minimax kind of thing. But as soon as I realized that, like, hey, turn-based strategy games, I actually like to treat them like an abstract game. I like to to, yeah. to try to, you know. And I don't know, it's just interesting. It kind of speaks to all of these different ways you can approach a game and how, you know, when you make the game, you can never know how someone is going to play it, right? It's like what they want out of it and, and what they're going to see in it because they just, they feel so differently uh, about like what makes for a good game and what they want to get out of the experience. Yeah, or just or just simply like, how, like what are you going to do? Like I, I was playing a Happy's Humble Burger Farm and like what's the first thing I do in the game is like, can I break the movement system in some way to move way, way faster than I'm supposed to be able to? I mean, it, it all the things are there. It's like, you know, you're, it's a horror game. You have to walk to and from work every day and it expends energy to do so. And energy is part of the game uh, and food and all that kind of thing. So, okay, what am I going to do? Well, if I jump, does that take up energy? Can I like sprint <laughs> jump? And then before you know it, I'm right. quite copying around this like horror game and, and you know, and I'm sure that was never an intention. But right, but I, I mean, if you I enjoy like it. Yeah. Like that. You know that that's that's the fun of it. The same thing with uh, what kind of what you're talking about with playing role playing games, like RTS games. Uh, it's really hard to immerse yourself necessarily a lot of the time in these kinds of things. It's more like okay, I have a a puzzle that I'm trying to figure right. out, and you repeat, repeat, repeat exactly. until you ex. It's it's a it's like a real time um, puzzle almost, in that you have to not only do it the way that is either intended or in a way that works, but you also have to execute in real time correctly. Um, that's what I find so addictive about that. And I'm very new to that genre too. I'd never right. played anything like it until I played, um, oh God, it stares back. And then I was just like, oh, this is new. Now I'm deep into it. Like, it's it's funny actually, because like RTS games were among the first I ever played. Like I'm a lifelong, yeah. like I've played thousands, literally like thousands of hours in RTS games. Yet I always feel kind of alien to the genre because when people talk about RTS games, they speak of it in such a like competitive mechanical sense most of the time, and I just can't you know identify with it. It's like I have played so much of like Warcraft Three, Age of Empires, Rise of Nations, uh, Dawn of War, Total Annihilation, you know all these so much, but I've never really seen them in that way. It's just kind of interesting. I the people, especially competition wise, they have a tendency that it's it's like if 
if you and I go to a, go to see uh, David Copperfield, all we see is magic, you know. But then there's a, a tendency for people who are really into this stuff to like, well, I want to know how the trick is done, and then they just start looking at the mechanics, and they begin to admire right, exactly, the, the way yeah. the trick is put together. Like, oh, what a great illusion, whatever. And then and it's just the whole point, of course, is just, yeah, they're both valid, you know, like yeah. they're just different ways to to enjoy things. It's like the difference between when you're a little kid and you see wrestling and then when you're an adult and you watch wrestling, it's a very different sport. <laughs> but you might still enjoy it for, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So with the discussion that we're having about all the different ways that different games approach what makes a fun experience, see how I rolled back in there? Like, they're not even going to notice the cut, you know? Just, um, now they are. But with that discussion, there's always this thing, and, and with you, it's very difficult even to like breach away from the topic of gaming in general because it's just like your brain is just so 100% all in on this stuff. But just crafting a fun experience in general can come from so many different angles, and that's the beauty of what I think uh, video games really do. It's the, it is the ultimate um, collision of all the different forms of art, from architecture to you know sculpture yeah, to it, pic- it, painting, art, everything. And I think that's also, that's actually kind of interesting in that people tend to focus, I mean, rightfully so, but people tend to focus a lot of like uh, on the fact that games are interactive, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that they highlight that as a strength of the game medium, which it is. Um, you know, I see a lot of people, they talk about, uh, okay, so, okay, there are a few, there are a few levels to this, this topic, right? Uh, first of all, people are trying to highlight what makes games unique as like, you know, what, what, what gives because the problem is that people approach it from the point of view of what gives games the right to exist. It's like, they don't need a right to exist. They're an artistic medium, right? But people try to justify this by saying like, oh, it's because they're interactive and that makes you be able to explore like narrative in a way that you otherwise wouldn't or, you know, this and that. And I completely agree that that's a great strength of games. But there is a slight flaw in that argument. And that's that's assuming that, you know, as I said, it's assumed the games need a reason to be around, right? Like, and, and basically, well, so what I want said with this is um, look at something like walking simulators, right? You And you look at things like, you know, you see a game, it's completely linear. Um, it's It has no real interactive elements to it. Uh, and then people play it and they say, well, this sucks, this could as well have been a movie, right? Now, my counter argument to that. Uh, is okay, but it doesn't hurt anyone that it's a game, right? Like the fact that it was developed, uh, the fact that it was coded and brought to life with real-time graphics and that you can look around in any direction, say, and so on, you know, it's like you don't have to say a game has to be all of these things and that's the only reason that it can exist. Like if if you have something that basically is a linear movie. It just happens to be made in Unreal or Unity and and you can walk along a path. Okay, that doesn't make it inferior to a movie, like inherently so, right? Uh, So, you know, I just, there is this sort of, uh, it's just kind of interesting to me, like when people talk about the game medium in these ways and that it's like, sometimes you don't need a reason to exist. Sometimes maybe you just want to express something or maybe, you know, sometimes maybe, or sometimes it's an observer, you just gain something out of something and, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be unique or it doesn't have to tie into any specific aspect of how games work or anything yeah. like that. You know, it's, it's, it's either you can say that it's all art or you can say that it's all just fun experiences and both, I mean, 
in both cases there that's like that's enough of a reason you you need in a way i feel like i can go kind of go down the rabbit hole in this topic i we touched on this a bit when um when David Szymanski was on recently, because a lot of his games, Dusk is his most famous game, but a lot of his games are what you might call a walking simulator. Sure. And in, in a horror sense as well. But this is a, uh, it's not just, uh, we often say the English language, but this is a, a, a linguistic problem in that we don't really have a word for what we're trying to describe. Right, exactly. So I w- if we were going to coin it, I'm sure plenty of smarter <laughs> people than me have said this a million times, but it's not necessarily like we, we use the word game to describe every interactive thing that you do on a computer, right? Like a, an interactive experience. Uh, it might be, be better to just call it interactive art or digital right. interactive sure. art or, you know, or electronic arts or what, you know, we've, we've experimented with these phrases a lot. We just tend to use the word game to talk about all of that yep. stuff. And it's one of those, like a square is a rectangle, but not <laughs> right. all rectangles are squares. And- kind of and you can go the opposite direction too. Like, okay, so we say we just define them as interactive art. Okay, but games aren't just artistic, right? Games mm-hmm. aren't only, games can be so many things. And if you look at something like esports, right? You wouldn't say necessarily that the prime quality of an esports title that is being played in an esports context is, is being art, right? It's it's being, um, you know, it's being a competition. It's being a social kind of, you know, it, 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 that's more comparable to sports. So, you know, there is such a broad, and, Honestly, personally, I'm kind of inclined to just say language changes, right? It's in constant movement. So maybe the definition of the word game will just gradually change over time, and that's okay. And we can keep calling them games, and that's just what we're going to call them, and that's okay. Yeah. An example is it just it, it's a simple matter of, like, do you understand what I'm saying, and do I understand what mm-hmm. you're saying? When two guys like you and me... Uh, yep who are big gigantic fucking computer dweebs say the word game. We both know what we're talking about and we mean video games, but game can mean chess. It can mean soccer. It can mean lacrosse, you know, like, I mean, this whole linguistic kind of pressure point is sort of that. That's also the reason that, you know, like in a larger societal context, it took a long time for games to go beyond this idea that, Oh, they're specifically always ever targeted towards children. Right. Mm -hmm. Because that's how they originated. By and large, um, you know, and we we have all of those kind of implications that it comes with that, and that's why, as a medium, it also has to have a have a hard time gaining a foothold in like society in that sense. Can I tell you a funny story? Yep. So when I was about twenty one years old, mm-hmm. I was in uh, school right for language, and I was studying Arabic, and I was really regretting the decision to be in the school. This is very difficult, like super fast paced. Like, and I didn't really have the option to quit at this point in my life. You know, I just kind of had to see it through and see if it worked out. And if it didn't, then, you know, maybe something else would happen. And that's how I ended up going into a different career field in general. But we're studying Arabic and my teachers are, you know, Iraqi and, and a lot of our focus was on the Iraqi dialect. And we're flipping through the textbook one day. And the topic of the day is, oh, look at this picture of the Tower of Babylon in Babylon, Iraq. And I got to thinking about it. And if you know the biblical story behind the Tower of Babylon, this is when people tried to build a tower tall enough to get to heaven, and God made languages. He gave them all different tongues so that they wouldn't be able to cooperate enough to build a tower. That was his solution to this. And I was thinking, if these motherfuckers didn't build this goddamn tower... (laughs) I wouldn't be in the situation right now, <laughs> but it's so true. Like just the inability for us to express ourselves through words 
can create so many like strange uh, dichotomous tangents that people go it's, on arguing about the definition of what they're talking about without ever actually getting to the point of what they were trying to express to say. And, and like the very said, like the very existence of different languages and how they interact with each other also kind of proves proves all that because I, I like in my case like I'm Swedish, right? Right. Um, like I was born in Sweden. I lived in Sweden for a very long time and I only moved to the US six years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm bilingual, but I'm also like, I, I run into a context where I co- uh, interact a lot between like, like in, in Swede, Sweden, US contexts, right? So a lot of times I run into this thing is like, I know perfectly how to express an abstract concept in Swedish, but it's like, I can't convey it in English and vice versa, but in a way that highlights how like languages are so subtle sometimes. And like, it's not just about literal meanings. It's like about like, entire ways of thinking, which is kind of fascinating. No, it's a hundred percent true. Like it, it, that's a big part of uh, localization, right? Is that right, you have exactly, to make, yep. every joke has to make sense in the context that you're telling it. You, you know, you can't, um, I'm trying to think of like a really specific example. But like, um, if you were to translate the words, I don't know, kitten caboodle from English into some other language, no one knows what the fuck you're talking about because that's not even a real word. It's just like this thing that old people say to like, well, the, the whole kitten caboodle, which means like everything, you know, like we tried everything. Um, it's just so weird. And there's, that exists in every language and it not, not only within the languages, but within the local regions, the cultures, the dialects, um, you can't call some. You know, you can't walk down the streets of America calling people cunts, but you can totally do that in Australia, right? right? Oh, absolutely. It's yeah. <laughs> but anyway, like, I think like your core point here is is kind of it's sort of getting to the very middle of all of that. It's like so much of our conversation around games as a medium just comes down to the fact that you know we just don't feel like game is the right term always for exactly what they are but we don't have anything better so and we don't have anything better because it evolved from it right it's like they it's branched a out from a singular thing problem and that you're you know you're coming out and you're saying like uh well okay well mr mr ivar welcome to in the keep uh, uh, hosted by me art bell and i would like to talk to you about well what what is this game what type of game are you making and you say well it's uh and then the immediate struggle is trying to find a word or a group of words that describes to me what the experience is going to be like without me playing it. Yep. And then, so you'd say something like immersive SIM. Now, what do the words immersive SIM actually mean? Immersive simulator. So you're telling me this is going to be a virtual reality game. Hmm. Well, and then you're like, well, no, 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 no. This is a word that we use to describe a certain, a very particular type of game, because if you want to like every game is an immersive. If you want to get like, you make sense of the physics yeah. or whatever that's going on in this world. And if you assume that world is real, then you just play by the rules and make things happen the way you want. Uh, but that's not what you're saying. You're, when you say MSIM, that makes a light bulb go off in people's heads who have played your system shocks. For or, better and for worse, right? Yeah, you know, like. Sexes, yeah. <laughs> it's, they're, they're extremely convenient shorthands, not just game terms, but the words <laughs> with, with, with compound definitions so to speak but they're also prone to causing you know people to have preconceptions so like now, now people have an idea of like oh this is what an imsim uh, this is exactly a problem i had um when i had my so i released a cortical trailer way way back like before 3d rounds 
before really calling it an MSM, right? Mm -hmm. um, but it was at the point I would sort of, at that time, I would describe it more of a, it was an, a retro FPS with MSM influences is what I would describe that, like the game like at that time. Um, the problem was that it was sort of voicing itself as a retro FPS, like the way it presented itself was like, oh, this is, this is an old school shooter. And so players saw this trailer and they're like, well, this looks way too slow paced, right? Um, oh, you move too slow, you shoot too slow, this is too... Because when they hear the words like retro shooter, they imagine something really, you know, visceral, fast-paced, chaotic, in, in a sense. But, so the problem wasn't that the game was too slow or the game was not too slow. The problem was that, you know, by using certain words to express itself or by presenting itself as something, it, it makes people have these ideas in their head about this is what I expect and this doesn't fit with that and you know therefore I'm gonna have this reaction. Luckily I I would say that like today Core Decay fits fairly well into the Imsim mold that they most people who use the phrase would think of it as, which is a good thing for the most part. Um you know it's uh and it's an interesting genre in that way. It's a surprisingly it, it, I mean, ever since Warren Spector co coined the term, basically, it's 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 had a very clear set of definitions for such a vague term. <laughs> like, yeah. like in terms of like, in a vacuum, it sounds so undefined, but it actually is very sort of strictly, not strictly defined per se, but it definitely comes with very specific ideas. The very same thing goes on with like arena shooter, right? right. Like you used to say arena shooter and that recently people have been using the word arena shooter to describe like devil daggers uh and when i hear the word arena shooter i hear quake you know or unreal tournament or something yeah i was gonna say there are basically two schools of like people who call something an arena shooter state overwatch or quake 3 yeah <laughs> it's... and and i i've made the argument many times like well by the definition of the words we're saying overwatch is 100 percent an arena shooter like i can't argue with that it just doesn't meet my requirements that I add on to that, you know, which which is essentially saying a a game that is like Quake or Unreal, like like, and if it doesn't meet these two parameters, and, and specifically like Quake Three and on in Unreal right. Tournament, yeah. And at the same time, I like all of these kind of things. I can kind of feel like mm -hmm. we do tend to get too caught up in having to attach a specific label to something, right? Like, know. you know, maybe we don't need to care so much about what what we call these games or, you know, what, what John's prescribed. I mean, yes, they're great for convenience. If I like this game, what word would I use to describe games that share qualities of that game that I might like, obviously, right? So, but I do feel like sometimes we go a little bit too far and I'm like, if we need to classify this, you know, we need to group, group this. And obviously it applies to everything, not just games, but, but yeah, for sure. Um, I, I kind of tend to take the approach of like, if it's not too much of an inconvenience, to speak more directly and rather than attach like a like a specific label to something that's a little too like all-encompassing or vague then it's better to to go all out and say uh you know more in detail this is exactly what i, what I mean you know but yeah a, eric weinstein is a pretty famous mathematician and uh thinker and i really like a lot i listen to a lot of his talks and one of the things that he brought up recently i think it might have been on joe rogan but i don't remember was he was saying like I wish that there was like this kind of catch-all disclaimer I could say before I start talking that says I'm not a bigot and I don't need I don't want to have to stop every five minutes to say oh by the way I'm not a bigot you know like so 
just anything, you know, we were very careful about the words we use to describe people and that kind of thing. And, and to some extent, rightfully so, don't get me wrong, but like just dancing around like, you know, gender pronouns or inclusive things or like a, the whatever word you attach to a particular race, not obviously not slurs, but like, you know, just whatever he has to do to say, like, before I even start talking, I just want to make it clear to everybody, I don't have any hatred in my heart for any of these groups of people. I'm just using the quickest, easiest terms in order to make my point come across up front. And the same thing should apply. I mean, I wish that there were that tool for every um, conversation to some extent, because we, you spend so much time. I mean, we spent talking, we've been talking for an hour and 10 minutes, um, essentially trying to define, (laughs) you know, what, what are we talking about? And, and you don't always have to do that. There was a very famous, argument between this is one of my favorite debates of all time but it was jordan peterson and sam harris and they could not agree on the definition of the word truth for like two hours and that what's so fascinating about it is at least you know whatever you think of either of them they both have their own flaws but they're de- both definitely like very influential thinkers in our time and quite articulate smart fellows to some extent and they just can't agree on the definition of a word because Jordan Peterson's truth is like, well, there's truth beyond just empirical fact. There's like, what is your truth? How, you know, how do you f- internalize what is the truth to you? And Sam Harris is like, you know, I need math and numbers to justify what the truth is. I need observation. I need experiment. And they can't get past it. That's just like, it would make it so much easier for us to just interlink our minds and then put out a podcast that's not audio. It's just like feel what it's like to be inside of both of our brains at the same time kind of thing. And now we've come full circle and we're back to the ending of day six. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> and that that's what we're all spiraling towards. That's a huge um that's a huge theme of a lot of specifically in the genre that you're part of here is yep. this constant uh, strive for people to be better for us to that's try. Actually also like when we're talking about like expectations people have when they hear immersive sim and kind of what they expect it goes beyond the mechanics right like Mm -hmm. most immersive sims have this quality of cyberpunk um, sci-fi not necessarily even sci-fi but more like like they're all waxing philosophical in one way or another right there it's all i mean if you look at sci i mean you can talk about things like philosophical sci-fi um in, in books in particular, but 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 also you know movies and games, but it's like it's almost like most most of these games, it's not really about the setting per se. The setting is just a canvas or a, a tool to express more abstract ideas and, and, and themes, yeah. right? Uh, in a in a way that's more so than a lot of other genres on average. The same um, thing know. applies to when you say role-playing game, most people think of Dungeons and Dragons, right? Not necessarily literally the game Dungeons sure. and Dragons, but they think of medieval setting. Though there are many examples to the contrary, Fallout or you know Cyberpunk or whatever, you can set that kind of game in any setting, but because it's been right. so associated mm-hmm. with knights and shining armor and warriors and rogues and all this kind of thing and bards, we just we associate the two words. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. But it's interesting. Like, I, I feel like that's also when people look at, like, look at Cordy Kane and think, oh, it's an immersive sim. They, it comes with the expectation, like, okay, it's probably going to explore some 
you know, philosophical concepts or existential concepts or, you know, like, and, oh, yes, it is. <laughs> but, but it's interesting that, that that's an expectation, you know, like that, yeah. that's, uh, and, and at the same time, to me, it's like, it's almost like the largest reason that I want to make the game in, in a way, you know, it's, it's really, um, and like, just to be clear, like, and once again, I don't want to go too far into the storyline of this game yet. Um, more than anything, because I think that people will be interested in starting, like not really knowing anything about it and going in with a you know totally fresh mind. And, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, now I lost my train of thought. What was I going to say? <laughs> um, yeah, what was I going to say? I don't know. I completely trailed off. Her. If we had that cyber <laughs> uplink, I, I, we would be able to just like, bam. Yeah. Well, anyway, um, but it certainly has to in spades. Uh, you're you're trying essentially to explain how the the philosophical um, expectation, the, the the general expectation that this type of game will have some sort of philosophical meaning. Right. And, and, it, the, you know. and importantly here, and I think this is what I was going to say, <laughs> is that these aren't new ideas, right? Like. Right. Cordic isn't necessarily trying to break new ground in you know philosophical thought. If anything, it would be incredibly, unless you really had something that you felt truly, like you really felt strongly about. In that sense, it would be pretentious to try to do so. Like that's not the point. You know, it's not, it's not trying to say something totally new about you know any of these kind of themes. It's really just, you know, one one voice among many. But but that's really all it needs to be, right? It's like again, you you look at. I, okay, so for once, let's not look at those six. Let's look at Soma, the uh, game by the Andesha developers, mm-hmm. um, that explored the teletransportation paradox and, and the philosophy of like consciousness. Um, and the themes that they explored had been, you know, even among games, you, you, you've seen them a thousand times, you know, like ex- exactly the beats that they're going through. But it doesn't matter. Like you play the game and you have a really beautiful experience doing so. And that's all you need. Like, it doesn't matter that it's been done before by someone else. Like, I feel like we have too much of a mentality a lot of time that something has to be groundbreaking and new and, you know, like completely like, and it's good that that drive exists, but if you can create something and you can say, this is what I want to say with this and someone else, you know, in this case, plays it, but, you know, experiences it. And they're like, okay, that, that, that wasn't, that was, that said something to me, that's really all you need to, you know, need to say. And then of course, you know, you still try to put your own uh, perspective on things, right? You apply your own experience, you apply your own ideas and and that influences how you say things. But, you know, it doesn't need to be like new groundbreaking philosophical thought. It can still be a really, because it's it's not really about what the games say, right? It's about what it makes you reflect on as 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 someone who experiences it. I have a bit of a like a two-headed response to that. So there's um there's the school of thought here where you you think of I'm really struggling here. Have you ever played the game Outer Wilds or are you familiar with that yep. game? Yep. Okay. So they have they have this mechanic that explores the idea of quantum physics that has nothing, you know, re- in reality doesn't have anything to do with real quantum physics, but it, like, it tries to explain it to you in a way that makes sense to us. And this is the idea that, you know, like the, this is a quantum boulder or whatever. And if you look away from it and you look back at it, 
when you're observing it, it exists in a different state than it does when you're not observing it. Um, and I think that when you're trying to, when you're trying to make sense of like what your game is or like it, whether or not it should be this thing that conveys a, a big message or whatever, there's two different ways of looking at that. There's the beauty for sure for me, especially because I, I talked to both sides of this spectrum. I just talking to you. And then like the most recent podcast I posted was Jeremy Alessi. You both have very different philosophies on this, <laughs> but I can really appreciate both of them. So like, you're like, I don't need to be groundbreaking. It's really, and that's, it's a whole thing that's beautiful about a lot of the, you know, quote, retro gaming community is that it's like, well, we're exploring new ideas within the parameters that we've set a long time ago for, you know, what are good mechanics for a game, right? So you can, with the computing power we have now, um, but with a certain philosophy that was built 20 years ago on what, you know, what a game should play like. We can come up with some really interesting ideas. That's one way of looking at it. The other way is to, you know, unfortunately, it's like a kind of a snake that's biting its own tail. The AAA industry is like this. We are pushing computing power to its absolute fucking limit within the parameters that we can affordably sell to you, you know, and that's a different that's a that's an also an art form. It's just a a very limiting art form and that, you know. The more you push graphics, the more you push computing power, um, you end up focusing a lot more on that and needing a lot more people and a lot more resources in order to accomplish the task. So there's the school of like, let's blow your fucking mind with column A, or there's the, your your philosophy, which I obviously focus a lot more on, in that you you are taking an idea that is tried and true for the most part. And you're just whittling down and you spent like 20 minutes explaining this earlier. Like I'm taking all the best things and all the worst things about these games that I love in, into, a, into account. And I'm doing it w essentially with all the best parts and trying to avoid all the pitfalls without, you know, and you're not trying to break the anybody's mind with the, some brand new, crazily never before done idea it's just like let's just fundamentally make a really great game there's a, right there's so much to that now of I'm course sorry, that was super long <laughs> at the same time um um it's it's i i feel like also it's not a dichotomy right it's it's right. a spectrum um you know it's not and, and i think that's important to to also and it's important to actually like recognize that, yeah. like again, you look at you look at quarter case as the obvious example here. There are things that are present in this game that you look at and like, okay, I have seen this twenty times before, but I can see how this now fits into the context of of, of this particular experience. And then there are things you look at and it's like, oh, I've never seen this before. This is really interesting, right? So it's it's not entirely one or the other either, right? And there are certainly aspects of. For instance, like the world building and the narrative and the storyline of, of Quarter K that I personally feel like, okay, from my point of view, I feel like I'm saying something new here, right? And to a lot of people, it's not going to be that way because, you know, they have a different frame of reference than I have. But again, it's like, a, I, I feel like it's important to, to think of this not necessarily in terms of one approach or the other, but more of like a, uh, you know, some things you approach from one way or other things you approach from another. And, and really, uh, if there is an existing school of thought or if there is an existing, 
the philosophical idea, if, if there is an existing aesthetic, if there is an existing game mechanic that conveys what you want to convey, great, use that, right? right. And in other contexts, it's like, okay, but here I actually kind of, I have this thing I kind of want to say, then say that, you know, so it's a kind of, yeah. Well, it's, it's, uh, there's an analogy that we could use in, in music, right? So like anytime there's a new musical genre, right? Let's, let's just say for the sake of like making it really simple, the blues, right? There's always the first person to really innovate that genre. And then there's everybody who does it after them. Or So in, in the blues, you know, a, a really good example would be like, you know, Jimi Hendrix, basically reinvented how people listen to the guitar like it, no yep. one ever played guitar like he did before him and then there's this wave behind him that learns from what he just did and perfects that style so like i think you know for me i prefer stevie ray vaughn to Jimi hendrix now stevie ray vaughn didn't necessarily reinvent the guitar but he took what Jimi hendrix did and did it phenomenally you know like so well that it's like right. near perfect and this is the same we see the same thing with um with console lives, right? Like where you have a uh, the beginning wave of games on a console, or like figure, okay, well, this is a lot more technology than we're used to having. You know, let's go fucking crazy. And by the end of the console's lifestyle, it's like, all right, we've done everything that we can, so now we have to optimize the computing power to accomplish what we're trying to do. And um, and another sort of uh, like flaw here is that we see this from the point of view of like society at large, or like all human beings ever. So again, looking back at Soma, right? Mm -hmm. If you've never heard of the teletransportation paradox. If you if you have never heard of these concepts, if that if that just hasn't occurred to you, then you will play this game and you're like, wow, this really this completely changed how I view reality, perhaps, right? Yeah. If you have heard of these concepts, you'll be like, you'll either be like, oh, this is an interesting take that I hadn't really considered. You might be like, well, okay, I, I get this take on it, but it, it might have presented an interesting way. Or on the other end of or like the far end of that extreme, you might be like, okay, well I've seen that before. Right. So yeah. This is not an objective thing, right? It completely depends on who you are as an observer and who you know who you are experiencing this. Um, you know, it's it's like reposts on Reddit. It's like okay, sure, but someone else might not have seen it, <laughs> and it's you know it's exactly the same. Uh, you know, sometimes all it takes. I mean, or for a different comparison, you look at like both games and movies and books. They they might take old ideas and but but they might present them to a new generation or with a new you know new mindsets. Because I mean, we can go as far back as to like the ancient Greeks. I mean, eventually a thought will have been made, uh, you know, a fundamental thought will have been made that everything else originates from. And I think if you dig too deep into that, you're kind of missing the point a little bit. And in a way, you know, like it's really, if it's Even... an enjoyable experience to at least one person, <laughs> you know, that's, that's all it takes sometimes. Yeah, Don't I tell, can... like shareholders will not necessarily agree with that point of view. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, it's all a matter of scale, right? Like to what, to what degree, what, from what angle, from what uh, resolution are we looking at this problem? I mean, like when I deal with the weather, it, it can be really common for a new, when we were talking about the weather earlier, it's super hot where you live. When I live in Oregon and I'm hot, <laughs> uh, I'm just kidding, but it's probably hot compared to Sweden, I would imagine. Uh, yes, yes, it is. <laughs> but people uh, new forecasters have this tendency to like you know well they get assigned a small area right and they can only really think about like that five miles or whatever area of what, what's the weather going to be right fucking here um and as you get bigger you know better and better at forecasting you get to the point where you can think on the synoptic scale which is like you're looking at 
an entire country. Like I look at the entire continent of North America every day and I can walk in and look at the charts that are drawn over that. And I can be like, Oh, here I can like pinpoint the little areas where like, this is where bad weather is going to happen really quickly. But when you're brand new, you can't do that. When you're having a conversation about, you know, gaming in general, you're talking about like what makes a good game in the context of how we're talking, where it's like, you know, if one person really resonates with what I'm trying to create here, that's enough for me. Yeah. Uh, but when you're looking at it from the big picture of like, okay, well, it's cost money and, you know, yeah. and it, no, exactly. I mean, it's, it, that's where you want to meet in the middle. You want to say mm-hmm. like, okay, from an artistic standpoint, you know, as you said, if it resonates with one person and they find it worth the time, that that's all I need to feel like mm-hmm. artistically fulfilled. Right. At the same time, you're making a commercial product. So it means that, okay, X amount of people need to feel fulfilled, <laughs> you know, and you, you have to break it down to math and, but it's not, that's just the reality of, of it. You know, like that's how you have the resources to do it. And everybody's trying to make, you know, their own personal version of the Mona Lisa, but there's always yeah. going to be that no matter what art form you're in, but there are gaming equivalents to like the, the famous, like I'm going to draw a single black spot on a white canvas and call that art. And people are like, Oh, I've never seen anything <laughs> like this. I'm like, no, you're, you're crazy. That's not like, I get it, but that's not what we're looking for here. But anyway, I, I can sort of wrap this up by saying that if you found interests or meaning or, you know, it, it, if it spoke to you playing games like, you get it, Deus Ex, uh, Soma, Prey, the, those style of games with, with those style of like, with the kind of themes that they explore, right? You will enjoy Core Decay. I agree. <laughs> that much I can say. There we go. <laughs> um, and that's really all that needs to be said, you know. And to some people, it'll feel totally new and interesting and have never heard of these things before. And to some people, they have heard of every single like thought that this presents, but they might still find that it presents them in like a, in a new and interesting way. And, uh, and that's really, uh, yeah, it, it's, it kind of comes down to that. That is the the ultimate goal of any marketer or, you know, any body who's trying to get attention in general like if you're an indie game developer think of yourself as your own marketer for instance but trying to find that you know that short concise like fits in a twitter handle you know or whatever whether it be words or pictures or whatever you have to do to resonate with the people who you are looking for who will enjoy your your thing that you're doing um it's so difficult to do but you've you've managed to do it in a, in a sentence if you like these things you will like this very simple very clean now of course the, the the flip side to that is if you lean too heavily into that you will just it will just come across as derivative right so you're like well okay if i play this why would i why would i play this because i've already experienced this so you have to try to also voice okay but here is also how it has its own voice that's where the challenge lies at least in my mind so how does cordica have its own voice that's um i'm in what ho- way <laughs> i'm hopeful that that is actually something that um there will be more light shed on at realm steep because there's so much that um uh, there's so many times in our conversation where you're, you're like you're basically like you'll go on a tangent where i feel like you're trying to say as follows obviously i really like deus ex but i'm making system shock too <laughs> well i mean it's the thing about this also, like the thing about having its own voice and, and all that kind of stuff is that that too is subjective, at yeah. least in my mind. It's like, it, it's not about 
this is exactly how this mechanics works. This is exactly what this, you know, what this storyline is portraying. This is exactly this and that. And it does these things that aren't that. Like, that's not really getting to the bottom of it. It's, uh, you know, like, it has less to do with what the game really is and more to do with how you feel, like, experiencing it. And that will always vary from person to person. So I, I what I'm sort of getting at is that I don't actually think that, like, when you're, when you're delving into this question of, like, how does it stand on its own or what is it trying to say that's, like, what only this is trying to say, the answer to that is not going to be something objective that's, you know, it's true for everyone. And I will say right now that I'm like a firm uh, opponent of authorial intent, <laughs> like, like very, very strongly so. Like, I do not think that the author of something, like that their opinion is any more valid than anyone else, like in any way whatsoever. Hmm. It might be, it might be interesting, right? It might be interesting to hear Oh, so the author thought like this about these yeah. concepts, right? But I, I strongly believe that it's no more valid than what anyone else might take from it, right? Not, not, not even a little bit. If anything, actively not so, right? Um, I could push it, back on that a little bit <laughs> if you'll hear me out. So this goes back to the linguistic problem of, you know, if I say the word is and you don't understand what I'm saying when I say the word is, then I, I have tried to convey an idea to you that you have not maybe one or two things, either you've failed to receive the message, the signal, or I have transmitted a signal that is not effectively conveying the message to you. Right. Um, so for it, I, I get it from the author or the you know creator standpoint of, I'm really trying to make you understand what I'm saying and how like, cause that's what art is. It's, it's someone trying to express themselves. I think well, but, should, well, you know, but that's kind of what I would what I would say like it's actually not yeah. like because to me art is not about an author or an artist communicating a special specific idea to other people. Uh, to me, art is about you know an author or an artist creating something that exists in a vacuum that then blossoms out into like reality and then it's disconnected from that original act of creation, right? If that makes sense. Like it's not to me it's irrelevant in a way. It's it, it, irrelevant is a wrong word, but it's like it's almost irrelevant what the artist wants to say. Like now it's out there in the world, and different people will interpret something differently, mm -hmm. and that's kind of the beauty of it. So it's like, yeah. and again, it's it's interesting to know what an author intended, or how they viewed things, or what their life experiences are that lead them to view their own work in a certain way. Like it's absolutely it's super fascinating, but it's not like more inherently valuable than what any random person who sees something might gain from it. And again, I don't think this is like an objective truth or anything, but, but that's, that's kind of how I, how I see things in just in general. Um, so like if an author goes out and say, this part of my work is about this, my reaction is like, oh, okay, that's an interesting viewpoint, <laughs> but you know, but, but, but it's not gospel. Like it's not, it's not any more or less like worth considering than, any other viewpoint that might possibly be out there. I think it's, it, I, I, I would say it's definitely worth considering. Like, you know, if you understand where Tolkien was coming from when he wrote Lord of the Rings, it could be very different from just some other asshole's interpretation. Sure, of it. but it again, that's kind of... the intent of what it But was that's sort of what I'm getting at with, yeah. like, I'm not saying it's not valuable in that sense. Like, it's, yeah. it's you know, it can be very insightful and interesting, but it's not grounds to, like, okay. it doesn't, you know... 
I get what you mean in in terms of like you hear a nice you hear a song right like um in the air tonight famous example right you know everybody thinks this song is about him like seeing somebody drowning or whatever um it doesn't matter you know it doesn't fucking matter what what um you specifically think the song is about it's the fact that it resonates with people and that you can take that and apply it to your own particular existence or your own how it makes you feel when you hear it. And as long as that's a positive experience or at least a, an experience that is like valuable in some way, not necessarily positive because it could be negative, I guess, then that that's important. I can, I can see where you're going with that. But like, I feel like if you put your game out there and people didn't like it, you know, it's even if you're, you're okay with like, you know, some people aren't going to like it. You want people to appreciate where you're coming from. Sure. With this game. Yep. Yeah. I don't know. I, well, see that, that uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna comment on that your, your particular choice of, of words. I don't necessarily want people to appreciate where I'm coming from with this game or what I want to say with this game. I want people to appreciate what the game is, um, like what, what what they are seeing in the game, and that's an important distinction, right? Because if they play the game and they're like, I'm actually getting a completely different message out of this, and it's like, oh well, that's interesting, great, yeah, <laughs> you know, uh, well, and honestly. That entire idea is so heavily embedded into the actual, like, narrative of the game itself that they're kind of indistinguishable. Like, and this this probably kind of comes the closest possible to answering that question of like what what gives this game its own voice, at least at least from like a narrative standpoint, in that it's so heavily focused around like holding back a mirror to you as the player, as a person experiencing it. And it presents you all these ideas and it's asking you, you know, where, where do you stand on these, these themes? What do you think about these particular concepts? How do they speak to you? And what would you do in this given situation? And, and so on and so forth. And, but like to a degree that is like the emphasis on that is a lot larger than you would see in a lot of other, in other other pieces. It's really, uh, like, it's not just being like, oh, this has a theme of these and these and these, say, like philosophical ideas or, or and so on. It's it's more about, you know, what do you feel as the individual playing this? Like, how how do you how do you view these concepts? Um, and sort of really making you like reflect over that in a way that's um, like the emphasis on that is is, is actually really high. Uh, but the fact that the emphasis on that is really high means that when you're talking about these kind of things like authorial intent, it's like it's almost like that's it's like a microcosm of the entire conversation. Uh, fascinatingly enough, you're. I, I really enjoy conversations like this because you are challenging my my way of thinking, which is good. Like that's what conversation <laughs> should be about. But you're like you're really making me reconsider kind of how I viewed that topic uh, because to me, I've always and I still. I mean, I'm not going to completely change my mind on this. I really do think it's super important for the the sender of the signal. What was it? What was it they were trying to send? You know that that to me matters. Maybe maybe it's a matter of it like it, it matters differently to different people, or you know, there may be a spectrum of different ways that that could be viewed. But like, if I send you a radio signal for or a uh, an SOS. And you don't get the message SOS. I have fundamentally failed at my mission of getting you to know that I need you to come help me. Um, right, and then we're really coming back to like maybe it is that authorial intent matters 
when the creator wants it to matter. Cares, yeah. Right? Like, and it might still mean that an observer might gain a totally different message and they can appreciate that and that's great. But if an author or like or an artist deeply cares about conveying a message and I really want to spread this message to the world, that might lend it greater significance compared to someone saying, I just want to create this and leave it to the world to interpret. But, right? like, but then that changes the paradigm of what your authorial intent is. Because if your authorial intent is that I want to not care what people think i just want them to interpret it in different ways and yeah now game then they you yeah. have successfully like no you're, you're absolutely right <laughs> it's a paradox you're right, you paradox. Totally right. Yeah. i'm glad we went on this <laughs> um man this has been beautiful i really i always have so much fun when we when we chat we should do it more often i think i agree yeah i actually i probably should wrap this up now i have yeah i have some things I need that's to what, bring, but that's what i'm trying to do man. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, no, great talking to you. Um, and yeah, I'm sure we'll be back talking more. I want to say before we go, I'm a little bit disappointed that you didn't want to talk about aliens because you love Deus Ex so much and you keep <laughs> that, you know, that the main enemy faction and Deus Ex is this secret group, the majestic 12, uh, who are famously leaked in a government document, alleged government document about aliens and people investigating them. And we have like, you got to get on the fucking alien train, man. I'm, I'm going to have to. It's you. All right, well, whole talk just about aliens. There you have it. I'm just kidding. I love you, man. Talk to you. Talk to you later. All right.